And um, I think it's uh, the last slide there on that, uh, that PowerPoint. And there are people that are, there's a whole committee that's here to help you, to make sure we help you through these times, whether it's financial, whether it's personal, or whether it's academic. Uh, yeah, that was that last slide there. And uh, we really do want to help them stay here, guys. So, yeah, thank you. That's good. Thank you. Um, and you may think there's no way that the finances are going to be available. My parents have lost their job, whatever it may be. Um, there are resources available to you. Um, and Larrick Fanfan uh, would be the one you would contact there at the bottom. Financial aid and billing, Larrick Fanfan. Uh, you would just email him and meet with him, and he will. they will look all over the place for grants, for scholarships, for any type of resources that might be available to help you stay. But I want to I really stress this point here. We're not just trying to get you to stay here because we want your money. Meaning we're not just going to say, well, let's see if we can just make them take out a few more loans so they can stay another semester. We don't know where the money's coming from next year, but they can worry about that later. That is not the spirit of ENC at all. Um, and we will advise you, if it does appear as if you will not have the resources for four years here. We will do all that we can to make sure you do get a college education and direct you to places where it might be more affordable to you if that type of situation arises. It, would be, it wouldn't even be Christian of us if we were seeking just to keep you here for financial reasons. We want to keep you for, for the mission of the college and sometimes uh, it is best at times to go to a community college for a year or two and then maybe come back or go somewhere else that's more affordable or stay close to home. Sometimes those issues arise and, and we're going to direct you in that way if that's what's best for you. Uh, Eric Clark, if you're having issues with academics and struggling there, one, of course, talk to your professors. But also you can contact Center for Academic Success and Eric Clark and any of those that work up there. Uh, do you know that you can get tutors? And uh, I think the first several sessions are free, and then after that it's $5. $5. So if the SIs aren't helping, you can get tutors. And then any personal issues, you can contact Brad Thorne or my office. Or you can go to your RD and they'll direct you to any of these people. So please know we're here to help you. Please don't think there's no way you can return without at least having a conversation uh, with some of us. We're here to help you and here to support you. Well, for the past uh, 50 years, 51 years, she hates when I say that, Dr. Nancy Detweiler has been a part of the ENC community. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Doc D that you may not know. Again, recently celebrated over 50 years of service at ENC's athletic department, over 21 years as the athletic director. Detweiler's career features a volleyball record of 505 wins and 179 losses. That's a winning percentage of 738, the highest of any coach in ENC history. During her tenure as head coach, Detweiler led her team to the NAIA National Tournament on six separate occasions. With her NAIA induction, Detweiler became just the fifth volleyball coach to be inducted into the NAIA Hall of Fame in the organization's history. She has worn several hats during her time at ENC. She spent 13 seasons as the head women's basketball coach and two years as the tennis coach. In her years with the basketball team, she accumulated 76 wins over nine seasons. Her other roles within the athletic department have included professor of movement arts and chair of movement arts division chair of social sciences. She currently serves as Director of Athletics as well as the Chair of the Movement Arts Department where she continues to teach courses despite her administrative workload. She lives locally with her husband, David. They have two children, Julie and Amy, uh, two daughters, Julie and Amy, and they are here and a grandson, Evan. Will you please welcome the legendary Dr. Nancy Detweiler. Are you nervous? Sure. <laughs>
Thanks for having me. I've been asking for this for a long time, and nobody's ever taken it. <laughs> well, thank you for um, all your love and support that you've given ENC over the years, and especially to the athletes. And I've been in meetings, or uh, new parents, uh, move-in day, and I've heard her talk to parents when the students are in other meetings, and she talks about her love and care for the athletes, and the coaches love and care for the athletes. So um, often we don't see all of that in the background. I've seen her in, mighty, in meetings get pretty feisty. I know that surprises many of you, that Dr. E can be a little feisty. I know it surprises you that she can be a little difficult at times. But it's always on behalf of her athletes, and so thank you for that. So tell us, we want to know a little bit about your background and your upbringing. Tell us uh, where you grew up and uh, tell us about your family. Yeah, or this family. Or it's dangerous to give me a microphone. Is this, is this on? <laughs> yeah. Often my mouth clips into gear before my brain starts, so bear with me a little bit. Um, I grew up in Ohio at a, in a little town that was barely a crossroads. Uh, I had siblings, two brothers and a sister, uh, a family that was extremely poor, uh, financially poor, not poor in, in being able to eat or food, but financially they had very little and I remember, even as a child, of having hand-me-down clothing. And um, I mean, not just a little bit. There were all brothers in the house, so at a time when all the females were wearing dresses, I was in jeans, because that's what was available. I was in shoes that was a, a, a bit too big for my feet, and then my feet eventually became so big they, fit, uh, they outgrew the shoes. But those kinds of things impact your life. Um, Early years on, my dad was an alcoholic, and I've said that to some of you. Um, I think that that impacted greatly how I approached my, my years as a teenager growing up, uh, opposed to alcohol and its use because I saw what it did to a family. Uh, my dad became very violent when he was drinking, uh, would beat up on my mother. Uh, I recall take my brother taking a broom and putting it across his chest one day and backing him into a corner and saying, don't you ever touch my mother again. And I think some of you have come through areas like that. Let me tell you that this last song that provides the kind of hope that you need because there is hope out there. That, that could have been my theme song out there. With the pain, there's something else out there. So I, I guess what I would say about background, uh, later years my dad quit drinking, uh, was a... Was a kind of a dysfunctional family, but at least uh, I knew that they cared, which uh, is kind of interesting when you're growing up. Uh, some of you I know, because I, I, I mentioned to somebody this morning, they said the same thing in my family. If you cried in my family or showed emotions, but especially if you were crying, if I had a, we had a three-inch razor strap, that was one of their instruments to make sure I stayed in line. If, if you cried, they said their favorite line was, I'll give you something to cry about. And you knew what that meant, you were going to get more. So... Eventually, you learn not to cry and not to show emotion, if possible, because it was, uh, it was an escape. And so around that, uh, I was able to bring up this facade where you aren't going to get too close to me because I'm not going to let you hurt me. And that's a, that's a type of a trust, and it's a very difficult thing to overcome. So as a teenager growing up, uh, yeah, I, I probably at times thought about suicide. I thought about escaping. But overall, uh, I'm very thankful. I don't blame my parents for what happened. They were, they were non-educated people in the sense that they probably made it to freshman year in high school. Uh, they did what they could 
for the family to keep everybody together. And when you reach a certain age, you then become that person who makes those decisions for yourself. You can't blame everybody else around you. You've got a responsibility to pick it up and go on. And so you said you grew up on a farm, and so not only, so certainly the family dynamics made things very challenging. What was uh, life like working on the farm? It was work. Uh, we had uh, it was a it was kind of a one man farm where my where my dad would force us into doing a lot of the labor. So we as even as six and seven year olds. Uh, we could follow behind a, a, a two-row cultivator where they were cultivating corn. We would have to walk those 10 acres behind there at a very slow pace and uncover any corn that would be covered up. Those kinds of things were typical of, of the farms in that, in that day. and So it taught you a certain amount of discipline. And tell the entire community about the time you harmed all those little baby chickens. <laughs> On accident. <laughs> Now, part of, my, part of my task, we all had jobs on the farm, and part of, part of mine was taking care of the chickens. And one, one time in the hatch process, I decided I was going to help them hatch. Um, so when they started to stick their little heads out, I decided, it was, well, I could help them if I speed up the process a little bit. It was much too slow. So I peeled off the shells. And in so doing, if any of you have been on the farm, you realize the chicken is attached to the inside of that shell. So when you start peeling it off, you're really harming it. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. <laughs> Any uh, any other challenges from 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 those years that uh, and and I think that wasn't planned, but thank you to the worship team that I because I thought the same thing that the Lord has really done a beautiful work in your life and your family's a testimony to that and you and we're blessing blessed by it. But any other challenges that um, that um, you are just thankful that God had brought you through? I think just keeping, you know, you escape into things, and, and I escaped into, uh, for a while I wrote poetry, believe it or not. Uh, I escaped into music. Uh, part, of our, part of the fun at, of high school was being in, in the marching band and the band. Uh, those kinds of things provided an outlet. Uh, otherwise, I, I think I would have given up. Uh, in elementary school, uh, yeah, I, kids laughed at me because obviously I was dressed differently and, and, and was different from some of them. Uh, you kind of grow with that laughter. You, you put up that facade. Um, I let them do that for a while, and then all of a sudden I started beating up on them. Uh, then I got in trouble, of course. I had, by the, time, by the time I was 10, I had a vocabulary of a truck driver. Uh, I mean, literally you name it, and I knew about it and, and probably had experienced it. Um, so it, it frustrates me a lot to walk across campus and hear that same kind of language going on. I, 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 just, I don't quite understand that because to me, my escape was in my schooling, my education. I knew that was a way out of my circumstance. To become educated means that you change. Education is either a permanent or a temporary change of behavior. There, there is no other way. You can get a college degree. We can get a college degree from lots of areas around the campus. Do you really want an education? And if so, then do you turn your life over to Christ where you get some support and the support around you to change your behavior? I've been in board meetings and, and all over 
um, that language that followed, I never took with me after I, after I found Christ as my Savior. Uh, did it take a lot of work? Yeah, and it took a lot of support. I had a, a good support in the church, the family that helped to remind me that there were ways of behaving once you became a Christian. Once you became educated, there are other ways that you behave and you don't carry all of that baggage with you. Drop it off, pick it up, make your own decisions to move on. Tell us a little bit about that family. I believe it was the Schaff family that you're speaking of that invited you to church and that's how you came into the church of the Nazarene. And um, yes, the, the Schaff family, one of the, one of the gals in my, in my class I, I was never good enough to play first trumpet, but she was the first trumpet player in our band, so I got to be friends with her. And Sunday nights was a, a free night, so she invited me to their church. And one of the things that drew me into that church was the, the music. Oh, boy, could they sing. The entire church, it was, it was like a choir. Um, they, they sang in parts, believe it or not. You know what that is? Um, it, was, it was really, really refreshing and to me that that was an out and so I started going to that church and eventually joined it up to that point I had been uh, attending I walked to a a Lutheran church that was nearby and and attended that for a while as a means of trying to to get out none of my family had gone to church at this point uh, so it was uh, it was a very different experience my dad decided that we had that I had joined a cult and so of course he was very much opposed to that but to me it was a saving grace I you know even at times as a teenager, I think I contemplated suicide. Had I stayed in some of those circumstances, I probably would have. I, I just could not see any light at the end of the tunnel until I found that light. And that changed that life, and the support of that church was phenomenal. I can recall uh, Brad Thorne's father when he was accepting the call to the ministry and the struggle that he went through and how that church surrounded him at that time and prayed and prayed and prayed and that same kind of prayer went up for me later when I went home after my freshman year and there's a story of how I got here but when I went home um, we had a camp meeting and uh, the pastor at the time invited people who felt like they were called enough to give their life over to God and so at that time I was one of those who went forward and, and dedicated my life to that service wonderful testimony of the church really makes an impact on our lives so thank you for that tell us about quickly the journey to ENC you you heard about ENC through the church and the Shaw family and you had friends here but tell us about uh, your your actual journey to ENC he wants he wants you to he wants me to tell you about how I really got here Um, my dad who as I said was thinking that this was a cult um was okay with my coming. I had never seen ENC. I'd only heard through, through my friends about the college. Uh, so we drove here in the back of, a, of an old pickup truck with a, car, with a plywood back on it. It wasn't one of the nice caps that they have on trucks now. Uh, three of us from our church and my dad, who barely left Ohio very much, I, and it was probably only about the third time I'd been out of Ohio, uh, drove us here. And, and the three girls from our church, or three now ladies, uh, rode in the back of that truck. We slept in the back on a mattress while my parents slept in the motel on the way, but that's, that's how we got it. They brought us to the front gate. Uh, I think my mom helped carry something to, the, to our room, dumped it out, and away, I, and away they went. So here I was. So that was moving day for you. It was moving day. <laughs> 
So uh, tell us a little bit about women's sports. Uh, I want to definitely talk about that for a few moments. Uh, when you arrived at ENC, what did women's sports look like, and what did and how did you invest in women's sports and uh, at that time? There were no varsity sports. We had intramurals, and the four societies played against each other, and that was the intramural program, and that's, that's actually all we had. Um, I had a, a very good roommate in Sue Adams, Norman, who uh, was an outstanding player. She was, I felt she, like she was a better player than I was, but we got on the same team, and pretty much our team dominated uh, at that point. Um, in 1963, Dr. Mann approached me, offered me $50 to start a women's basketball team. Now, I hadn't graduated yet from college, but he wanted to get a start on recruiting, and so that would have been our first year. We put all the pieces together uh, to make it a season. Now, that season probably was only about, oh, maybe eight teams. I don't even know. There were no teams in the area, so it was a difficult thing to do. At, at the time, we were playing, now, now mind you, this is the beginning of women's sports pretty much in general, uh, and we played, uh, well, Northeastern University was one of our opponents, and the coach there at Northeastern was also the assistant coach for the United States Olympics team. So it was, a, it was a very good group. We played Boston University. We played Boston College. We played Providence College. Uh, we played Brown University. You'll note that they're all Division I schools. That's all, those are the only people at that point that had uh, basketball. Were we competitive? Oh, yeah. And did we win? Yes. And after you start beating Division I schools, um, that size schools, they don't want to play you anymore. So eventually uh, that didn't happen. But, yeah, um, we, we actually put together later in the, uh, a volleyball team in the 70s. We had the same people. And people would say to me, look at the size of your school. How can you do this? Well, I took the same 12 people who played basketball and taught them volleyball. They had never played volleyball, so they didn't have bad habits. It was wonderful. <laughs> and they came through with some really, really good teams and some, very, and some undefeated seasons as a result of that. So it was, that part was pretty exciting. The good thing, and I say that to all of you athletes down front here too, the good thing is that coaches don't win games. Athletes win games. We can maneuver and do whatever. I have a great group of coaches that are probably scattered around here somewhere. Uh, I think they're doing a wonderful job, but they can't win the games for the athletes. And so it was those wonderful people that I got to coach over those years that actually made all those wins. We don't have time to go into it too much, but you were really a, a pioneer in bringing about equality for women's sports, which we talked about uh, quite a bit yesterday. Not only because of Title IX eventually came into play, but there's still inequality between men's and women's sports after Title IX was in, in place. Is that, is that right? And, and what did that inequality look like, and what, what were you person for? And, and at what point, sorry, so many questions, at what point do you feel there was equality? The inequality was pretty evident when we started. We had, we had a place called the Bargain Center where we were like, much like job lots, big lots, where you could go buy, well, we went and bought uniforms. I bought shirts at a, a, like a dollar a piece. Uh, I took white iron on and sketched out the letters with stencils, and we sat down and ironed them on to make our uniforms. This was at a time when the men's team had, the men's basketball team had, uh, all the warm-ups. I know you'll think it's rightfully so, right? 
they had all warm-ups. They had nice uniforms, tackle, twill. They had uh, uh, just about everything that was that you could add, add for a basketball team. The men's team had, and the women's team started off with these makeshift uniforms, and, and they remind me of that all the time. So eventually we got to that stage. Let me tell you that you probably don't know, but in our midst there are two people that were very, very instrumental in women's sports on our campus. Uh, Jan Randstrom Calhoun was my assistant coach. I always like to think of her as being the brains behind our, our teams. Uh, not only was she a, a tremendous setter, she works in our, in our accounts uh, office, but she also was an outstanding coach, and she's an outstanding person as well. She contributed immensely to the growth of women's sports and trying to make things equal. And the other person who probably did on the equality side as much as anybody here is Jan Lanham. Did you think of her as an athlete? She was very good. She actually was your student body president here on campus when the gym was built. And the reason the gym moved forward, the gym that we now have, we were, we were in an old barn uh, playing and practicing and, and our practice times were six o'clock in the morning by the way six every morning because I had to go teach so uh, six to eight was practice time Jan maneuvered the student body to be able to add a fee to your uh, cost in order to be able to help fund the gym and that's the only way that they moved that thing forward and, and Dr. Parrott agreed that they would start uh, the new building and, and she was very much instrumental in doing that but even more than that she later became a vice president for student development, and many of you don't even realize that. As a vice president for student development, she was over top of athletics. So when it came time to divide the money out and try to make sure we had an equal uh, footing for women, we had to do that in such a way as not to take away from the men. I was very determined at the beginning that I was never going to be accused of taking away from the men to upgrade the women's program. And so she was the support behind that to help that make that happen. And I very much appreciate all the work that she's done over these years. And I'd just like to say the community, so Dr. D's influence on equality in women's sports goes way beyond ENC. Think of the city that we're in and the academic city that Boston is, and her influence uh, was throughout the entire area. So she's really a historic uh, leader in that movement for equality of women in women's sports, but unfortunately that story's not, not often told, so thank you for that. What has been, just a, a few more questions, what has been your greatest challenge working here at ENC over these 50 years? Trying to get people to believe in themselves. Now, I, I don't know that I do a great job of that. Uh, I heard Mark DeMichael last year during this Heritage Chapel talk about hitting beside the head with a 2 by 4 I really didn't quite do that. But, you know, I, I look at faces in my class and I would like to say to them, you know, you really have to put something into it to get something out of it if you're going to be educated. I think trying to get you to realize what you could be and the potential you have down the road. We've got some, we've got some great teachers out there and some great people. Uh, the Hall of Fame people went on and on. For some of you who got to see that. Uh, they've done some wonderful things in life, and you have the potential to be able to do that as well. And I really believe that. I don't know how to get that across to you, except that you can't just cut class and skip class and be lackadaisical about what you do. We aren't going to give you a degree. You are going to earn it, and you're going to earn an education with it, or you're going to fail. Failure coming up in my day was an embarrassment. My greatest fear in coming to ENC was that I wasn't going to make it. And I don't know if some of you have that fear. Uh, I wish you did, 
because I think it would drive you a little bit more to do the work that's necessary to, to actually get an education. And what, um, what is uh, your greatest, the greatest signs of hope that you see for ENC? I think they're in front of me. I think that you've got an opportunity. I, I looked at some uh, Microsoft stuff this morning, and I realized the technology that, that you face ahead of you and, and the tools that you've got to work with are so much... I don't, I'm not talking about video games. Forget that stuff. Uh, unless, unless you're going to do some, some, some jazz with it or something. I don't know. It's just the fact that you're so knowledgeable. You've got so much more going for you. In, the, in terms of, of knowledge and potential than I had coming in. I was, a, I was a struggling farm person, and I look back and say, mm, how did I ever get this far? If you would just pick that mantle up and go, we had people, there are people ahead of you. I, on Sunday, the pastor talked about Audrey Ward. She worked in our 50-some years in our uh, business office. She donated to this church over $200,000 just recently upon her death. Audrey Ward skimped and saved and gave so that you could be here. Not only that, she, she put a lot into this church. L- look around you and see how many people are sitting with your feet up on the back of the pew or your, your foot propped up on the book. You know what I think about that? I think of Audrey Ward and a person who gave her money to give something nice to you. Now, if, if, if Dr. McGee invited you to her house for dinner, I can't believe that there's a person in this room that would go in and stick your feet up on her coffee table. And yet, here we are in the house of God, given by people who sacrificed. And, I'm, and I was with them. I knew that they were sacrificing. And yet, you're teaching, and, you, and you're, you're in God's house, and you're giving it the same or lack of respect. And that kind of bothers me because I, I know Audrey Ward. Dean Monroe had a great saying that God would not waste a consecrated life. Think about that. If God's not going to waste a consecrated life and you're that consecrated life that's giving, there have to be some changes because education changes. Sounds like I have a lecture ready and I don't, but do you get it? That giving is what makes you different from everybody else in Boston. You can get a, you can get a degree at, at UMass Boston. Are we different from them? I hope so, because if not, then we, why are we existing? What have the athletes taught you over the years? Patience, patience, <laughs> patience. They're wonderful. I, I really love, you know, I miss coaching. People ask me that. Um, I miss the, I miss that, that feeling of working with the teams. I get some of it in my classroom, but it's not the same as working with teams. Uh, I love these guys down front, these teams that I work with. I was so proud of our women on Saturday. They played through rain and sleet, and what a mess. And 44 seconds from the end of the second overtime, the best player in the league escaped on defense and got got a foot on the ball. But they played so well, and they represented you with class. They were wonderful. And so that's what I think of our kids. That's wonderful. Final question. What has God taught you over these years? To rely on him. I I think 
the many times that I wake up in the middle of the night and I, I don't sleep real well and I, I start praying for people. I think that often because I had to early on make decisions that, at age 12 that affected my life greatly. And if you make those decisions, then you, you kind of want to take hold and do that. There are times when God opens doors and closes doors and, and you have only to follow. When I started teaching, and I love teaching, I, I, I was supposed to student teach in Quincy when I left my senior year in December. When I came back, I don't know why, but suddenly I was at another school system on the South Shore. I've no, I still don't know to this day, but I walked into that school. The principal I met, we got along okay, and he was going to show me around the school. The very first person I walked and met was the elementary phys ed teacher, and I said, oh, I would love to be doing that someday. And he said, really? And I said, yes, it was my dream, but I wanted to go to this school, and they didn't have a phys ed major. So this, this, is, this was really, it really is true. He said, within the next week, he had approached me, and he said, if, if you would do your student teaching in the gymnasium as well as the classroom, which I ended up doing, uh, she's going on maternity leave for the rest of this, this semester, and, and I'll make sure that you get a contract for the rest of the year. Now imagine that. God opens the doors. I had no idea on earth when I went there or why I was there to begin with. And from there it snowballed. Uh, I, I ended up, I also had, in order to, uh, Gwen Mann, who was our elementary teacher at the time, was very astute on how to handle things, said, okay, I'll let her student teach in both areas only if you'll give her a contract for next year. So suddenly I had a teaching contract for the following year only on the proviso that I would go to graduate school. And I started that in the summer and did, did double classes in the summer to, to ke- play catch-up. God opens doors. Did I have any clue? Not any clue on earth. And I've loved every minute of it. I, I mentioned to Corey the other day, um, I like teaching uh, first aid. Now that's kind of weird because we have a trainer that could do that. Uh, if there's something about instead of putting a band-aid on somebody's cut, if I can take a dozen of you and teach you how to do something and how to put on band-aids, look how that has spread. And I think that's God helping multiply our talents. I am a firm believer in the fact that you're giving talent, given talents. You have 100% of your ability should be put on trying to develop those to the greatest of your ability. You have a responsibility to give back for those talents. Now, where you give them back is, is probably some of your choice. But the fact that you can be mediocre about your life, I'm sorry, in my books that doesn't cut it. If I'm going to give 100% of my time, I want to give God 100% of who I am and not half of it. Well, I, as we said at the beginning... Um, singing that song you make beautiful things and and god has really certainly blessed your life and it is a a beautiful beautiful example of the grace of god and hope of god and um so thank you so much for you want to say something before i conclude yeah i kept thinking about if he makes beautiful things how come i look like this (laughs) how many of you think dr's beautiful woman
Well, thank you for thank you for your service to ENC. Thank you for your service to ENC and the athletes and the Church of Jesus Christ. And uh, we are blessed because of you. Will you thank her one more time for her years of service here at East Bay? You are dismissed. Go in peace.